Hello, welcome to episode seven of the third season of Faith in Politics. This month is the first of potentially a few lockdown episodes where we'll be coming to you from our homes. We hope you're all staying safe at the moment. Yes, coming up on today's episode, we've got an interview about the post-pandemic economy with Paul Morrison, our resident guru on the economy at the Joint Public Issues team. And then Rosella and I will do our monthly musing about why Christians should care about the economy. Welcome back to Faith in Politics. Rosella, you're in lockdown in beautiful Bolton. How are you coping? Yeah, well, it's definitely great to be back in Bolton. Um, nice to be in a house with a garden and a lot quieter than London. So generally, it's quite a nice place to be. Yeah. How about you? Yes, I'm having quite a nice time being back with my family. Although my immense love of board games is now being strained by the amount I have been playing since the lockdown started. So I do hope it doesn't go on for too much longer. One thing I have realised while we've been in lockdown is the immense influence that our podcast has had on the new Labour shadow cabinet. What listeners might not know is that we've had three people during the course of this year who have, for quite understandable reasons, uh, cancelled or postponed interviews with us. Now, these were David Lammy. We were meant to interview him back in November, but the general election scuppered that. Then uh, Ed Miliband was meant to be at the conference. We were going to interview him, but he had to pull out for personal reasons. And then Jonathan Reynolds, uh, we were meant to interview him, but the uh, pandemic uh, had come in force by the time our interview was scheduled. And what links these three people together is that they have all been promoted to the shadow cabinet by Keir Starmer. And I just can't ignore that uh, correlation between cancelling interviews with us and being promoted. And unfortunately, Barry Gardner, who we just interviewed, no go. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Uh, this month, we've mentioned previously that we're going to be chatting about uh, post-COVID economy. And we thought we'd really push the boat out on the taboo topics of the day. We find British culture likes to avoid talking about politics, talking about faith. And obviously, we do that every month. But this month we're bringing money into the equation too, to just to up the ante a bit on taboo topics. Taboo topics, but incredibly important topics, which we hope you'll enjoy listening about. Let's move in to our interview for today. Paul Morrison is one of our colleagues at the Joint Public Issues team and is one of the cleverest people I know. He's one of the UK's leading experts on poverty and inequality. He's a trustee of Trussell Trust. And although we didn't talk about it in, in, in the interview, he's also done postdoctoral research into viral disease and vaccine design. And as part of his work around poverty and inequality, he's also increasingly become our economics expert at JPIT. So we talked to him about the economic impact of coronavirus, what governments are doing about it, and what the future might look like post-pandemic. Let's have a listen. Paul, thanks so much for agreeing to speak to us. Already in this crisis, we've seen unprecedented state intervention in the economy what with the package furloughed workers, help for self-employed, loans for businesses, mortgage holidays. In order to pay for this, the government has to borrow huge amounts of money in the hundreds of billions of pounds. Where does this money come from? Well, governments borrow money by issuing bonds. Essentially, they issue an IOU. And it says, if you buy this bond for £100, 
I will give you a hundred pounds in 10 years time, but every year you hold the bond, I'll also give you a tenner. So essentially that says I'm going to borrow a hundred pounds at 10%. And obviously it's not a hundred pounds and it's not a hundred and it's not 10%. It's a bit more complicated and it's a lot larger than that, but it is just selling these bonds. And the government is planning to sell uh, 46 billion pounds worth of bonds this month. And to put that in context, that's a, just under the amount, the amount of bonds it sold last year in total. So that's treble what it's expecting to, to spend. So it's a really big, it's a really big lot of borrowing that's happening this month and is probably going to happen for the next few months. One of the distinctive things about the response so far is that central banks have committed to buying an awful lot of these government bonds. How and why do central banks do this? The thing you're referring to quantitative easing, and it's a which is a word that sort of arrived in our consciousness ten years ago as a response to the last financial crisis, and it's happened a few times in history. But what's happening is that these bonds, when these IOUs, when they're sold, people sell them between each other over the lifetime of the bond. And what the government is doing is it's buying its own debt back. So it's buying debt that's already out there back. But what's happening is the Bank of England is just typing the money into a spreadsheet and creating it that way, and then using that money to buy back government debt and by, by buying back government debt, it means that by the, end of, by the end of this round of quantitative easing, which will be 200 billion pounds worth, uh, we'll own well over a third of our own debt, which sounds very strange. So what happens is the government borrows the money, the Bank of England buys, back, buys that debt back, and then the government pays the interest to the Bank of England, and the Bank of England pays that interest back to the government. So it's a very, it sounds very complicated and it sounds very strange, but fundamentally it's quite, it's quite easy. You just create the money and you buy back your own debt. And that has, there are good and bad reasons for doing that. Uh, one of the good reasons for it is that it enables borrowing to happen at the moment. And we need that money and it's clear that that money needs to be spent. One of the downsides is that further down the line, the effect of creating this money is to, give, is to make the wealthy more wealthy. By buying things that the wealthy own, it puts up the value of the things that wealthy people own. And if you don't have any money, you don't get any part of that. So if you were poor and didn't own anything, you're not getting any of this additional wealth. Whereas if you're wealthy already, as things expand in, in value, you get richer. And the last time this happened, the richest 10% of households got around about 200,000 pounds better off, mainly by virtue of having good pensions, which expanded in value. Whereas the poorest actually got a little bit poorer because of that, because of the expansion of money in that way. So the quantitative easing, this kind of central banks buying government bonds is a good way of financing government spending quite quickly. But as the newly created money goes into the financial markets, as you've said, it primarily helps those with investments in those markets like pensions and things. What are the other options in addition to or instead of quantitative easing 
that might reduce rather than increase inequality like happened last time? Well, it's important to note that the government doesn't do something which, uh, or isn't currently planning to do something, which is just printing its own money and spending it. This rather convoluted mechanism is a way of avoiding doing that because traditionally that's led to really, to really bad problems. So what it's doing is it's buying back debt that it issued a while ago and bringing it back into the Bank of England. Now, there are other ways of doing it. You don't have to create money in this way, but it's probably the wisest course of action at this point in time. The real question about whether or not it drives inequality is whether or not you do other things to level the playing field afterwards. It's whether or not in 2010 when we did this, we tended to talk about how handouts were given to the poor and there was a whole rhetoric about people on welfare taking money from everyone without recognizing that huge amounts of value in assets in things like pension funds and in housing was being passed to the wealthy via this slightly less obvious mechanism. So the key thing is, is to understand that what we're doing is having an impact in it on wealth inequality, that it is, it is privileging the wealthy over the long term. And so we need to do something to recompense against that. And that might be wealth taxation, it might be other forms of redistribution, it might be giving, in some states they are just giving money rather than going through this convoluted bond mechanism, they're creating money and giving it to uh, families on low income. So there's other ways of, there are ways of counteracting the problem but whether or not that's the only way to finance our debt at the moment, it seems probably it is. So we're seeing at the moment quite a lot of different financial outlooks and projections of where things might be heading. We're wondering what your outlook on a post-COVID economy might look like and what impact do you anticipate long-term in terms of inequality? Well, I think I'm sort of relentlessly positive. It doesn't look... I mean, numbers don't look particularly good at the moment. And if you view borrowing as a bad thing, then clearly we are going to be doing a lot of that bad thing in the near future, and we need to. But I, I keep thinking of 1946. Uh, since this is a podcast, I should tell you, I certainly wasn't around then. I'm not quite that old. But in 1946, we had the highest level of debt that this nation has ever had before or since. We were borrowing two and a half times our national income was how much debt we held. But in 1946, we decided to create the National Health Service. We decided to create the modern benefit system. We decided to do things because they were right and because they were, they promoted the well-being of the people in our society even though we didn't have a lot of money to do it. So often we think that our actions are driven by how much money we have. I think actually our actions are driven by the values we have. And one of the things I'm seeing is, you know, the Daily Telegraph has had a relentless campaign to reduce the size of the welfare state, to say that the welfare state and the universal credit and the other benefit system is too generous. But I am seeing them writing articles now saying, isn't it terrible that 
when people move on to universal credit, if they've got a small amount of savings, they might put aside for the deposit in a house or they put aside for their wedding, that they can't get universal credit until they've spent those savings. When, they are, when people they know and understand are put in the position of having to claim welfare, suddenly they've got some solidarity. They're saying, actually, no, that's unfair. And I hope in a small way over the next few years, that solidarity can build, that we can design a universal credit that isn't for them, isn't for this other group of people who need help, but actually it's for all of us and we all might need help one day. So yeah, the, the numbers look a bit scary, but scary numbers aren't the reason why we have this level of inequality. The reason we have this level of inequality is because we've designed an economy that delivers this level of inequality. And we could design another one. And maybe we'll be motivated to at the end of this. So as Christians, um, we're often very good at speaking out about issues of poverty and inequality, but we're not so good at speaking into the macroeconomics. Why should Christians care about the economy? I'm a, I'm a trustee at Trussell Trust. And one of the glorious things about that organization, and I, I just, I love working with them, is that you move from seeing someone hungry and that really basic visceral thing of that's wrong, I, you need fed. And then the people in the trust fill in their, their vouchers and, give a and fill in a data system which goes to the central office and they use that data to campaign to government to say, you need to change the welfare system so that less people appear at my door hungry and Christians are traveling that journey and you can see people traveling that journey that they, kn they know they need to change the, the structure but there's actually another step that goes further along is that the welfare system is just one part of, a, of an economy and that economy sometimes people think that it, it's God-given it's like gravity you know, things have to work this way, but they don't. Most of the important decisions in our economy and most of the things way we choose to value things and why some people get paid huge amounts of money and some people get paid less isn't because of some invisible hand of a market that has to happen. It's because we've chosen to let it happen. And if we take that next step and say, if I don't want people to be hungry and I want to live in an equal economy in and in a more equal society where we have more fellow feeling with each other, then we have to intervene. We have to intervene in that higher level of or that, that, that level of macroeconomics, which says, well, maybe we want to have wealth taxation so that generations of people can't pass down their privilege to the next generation and the next generation because that disadvantages some others. You might want to say we want to have, we want to intervene in the labor market so that things like zero hours contracts aren't acceptable. So that taxa the taxation system says that if you want to use lots of people in zero hours contracts, it's gonna cost you. And maybe it might end up being better for you to employ people in something that might be, give them more stability. There are lots of things we could design in even before we got to people needing help from the welfare system. And 
Christians need to be involved in all of those parts. And there is nothing better about being involved in macroeconomics than there is about being involved in filling that bag that goes to someone in a food bank. All three components are needed, but we need to recognize that politics isn't just something for, for other people or something that our faith doesn't speak to. If our values driven by our faith do not speak to how we think about macroeconomics, we really need to understand both those things more. And finally, to close, if you could ask one question of the Prime Minister, what would it be? Well, we're recording this when he's in intensive care. So my, I think it would be, how are you? And I, you know, I, I think from what I've said already, you, you probably get that I, I am not his biggest fan of his macroeconomic policy, but uh, a disease like this is a great leveler and makes us all realize that our shared humanity is much more important than anything else. If I had to ask him something about the economy, I think I'd ask him why he thinks we're such an unequal country. Because if you look at our economy and you look at our society and you see people who are extraordinarily poor and were born into poverty and are not getting out of poverty and seeing people who are extraordinarily wealthy and were born into wealth and are never leaving it. And your argument is that we live in a meritocracy where each gets what they deserve. You've got a really difficult argument to make. It doesn't work when you look at the society that's around us. And if it's not a meritocracy, if it isn't your endeavors and your intellect that uh, decides where you sit in our society, what is it? And what is it you want to decide where we sit in a society? Because my feeling is that as a Christian, I just believe that we are all equal. We are created equal, and that means we all must live in dignity no matter what. And I'd love to know what, where his position is on that and where his position on why we are in such an unequal society is. That's great. Thank you very much, Paul, for joining us and giving us lots of food for thought as we think about these issues. That was a really great interview from Paul and he certainly gave us a lot to think about, hopefully you too. And as he mentioned, we're all obviously very pleased that the Prime Minister is now out of hospital and recovering. Let's move in to our monthly musing now. We thought we would zero in on that question that we asked Paul about why Christians should care about economics. And Paul gave us a really good starting point there, saying that it can't be separated from our faith and that the values of our faith are ones that should be reflected in macroeconomics, this big picture thinking. Rosella, you've been doing some thinking around this. What is your kind of initial response to that question about why we should care about economics? Yeah, so some of my early research on this um, came up with a blog from a prominent theological scholar where he said that um, the reason God created money and enabled us to earn it is so that we could show by the way we use it that money is not our treasure, Christ is. And I think that often reflects how we look at money in the church and we have it as this idea that the important thing about 
finance is what we do with it in our personal finances and we should tithe to churches, we should give to charity. But there's this hidden assumption there that, well, firstly here that God created money and that the system that brings it to our pocket is part of this created order rather than it being something that we can control and that we can influence and that we should consider as an important part of our our Christian faith and something that we believe that we can speak into. And this is a common issue, not just in the church. There's the popular phrase that money makes the world go around. The current economic structure is centered on this idea of the invisible hand and market forces, which seem much bigger and beyond human control. And in this ideological depiction, uh, the economy can become more fixed and seem more unmovable and less changeable than society and nature. And I think when we think of it like this, we realise that our faith must have something to say in this, that this deified language of invisible hands and market forces needs to be something that as a, as a church we can, we can challenge. Yeah, it's about demystifying the economy so that we can recognise that it's not valueless, it's not neutral, it, it's currently run by certain values and it, it could be run by different values and that those values can be the ones that are reflected in our faith. So let's think about what the Bible might have to say beyond simply personal finances. One of the stories that sprang to mind for me uh, was in Mark 12 and Matthew 22, uh, where Jesus is asked whether Jews should pay taxes. And Jesus responds by asking them whose image is on the coin. And once they confirm that it is Caesar's image on the coin, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God what belongs to God. Now, the unspoken punchline in that story is, of course, that everything belongs to God, including our finances, because although the coin has the image of Caesar on it, every person bears the image of God. Now, this suggests that we should consider how we should use our personal finances to bring glory to God. Uh, but as in so much of Christian social justice discourse, the way into talking about the structural issue is by broadening what we would often see as these individual values to apply to society as a whole. So in this instance, it's not just about how we as individuals use our finances to bring glory to God, but how our society organises its monetary system, the economy, to reflect the fact that ultimately everything belongs to God. Yeah, and I think one of the ways we can see that play out in the Bible is in the story of Ruth. Because here we see some of the ways that the Levitical law produces an economic system um, that's designed to protect the vulnerable. Um, we see that in Ruth being able to glean crops from farmers um, that have left behind some of their crops to ensure that those who need it have access to food. Um, but also we see that in the economic and the social redemption of Ruth and Naomi when she uh, marries Boaz. And I think in this model we see that this economic system is built on those relational ties in which those who have much share with those who are in need. And it isn't just a case of Boaz being generous in his personal finances. It's the fact that he's embedded in a system that can hold him to account for failing to be responsible for those in need. Yeah, I think that's a really good example uh, from the Old Testament to, to go with my one from the New Testament. One of the things I looked into when thinking about the economy was whether the word economy uh, is actually used in the Bible. And I found that it's only used once. And the word that uh, is translated as economy is oikonomonia. That's the Greek word, which comes from 
oikos, which is the word for house, and nomos, which is the word for law. That's not really important, but effectively the literal translation of economy in the Bible is household management. It can also be translated as stewardship, edification, or God's work in some translations. What struck me was that whichever one of those definitions you choose, it's always an active word. It's about management. It's about work. It's not a passive one. And our current economic system is still primarily based on free market economics, where active management, where state intervention is very much frowned upon. You want to let the economy run its course. Although, of course, the coronavirus is very much challenging that assumption in many uh, Western countries. It'll be interesting to see how the long term consensus shifts. Now, obviously, the meaning of words changes over time, but it's worth noting that the etymology of the word economy and its only biblical use is about this active work and management, not just about letting things run their course. And when I was thinking about this, uh, thinking about free market economics, it struck me that it has certain parallels with a philosophical belief called deism. It sounds strange and complicated, but it's effectively the belief that God created the universe. He planned it all out and they set it all in motion. But then God steps back and doesn't intervene in the universe beyond that first act of creation. This deistic worldview is one where there isn't a personal relationship with God and there is no divine intervention in the world. Now, free market economics is a belief in an economy without government intervention where things are left to run their course. So I thought that there's these parallels here. When I had this thought, I decided to look up to see if any of the minds behind free market economics were deists. And it turns out that many people think that Adam Smith, who's considered to be the father of capitalism, was quite possibly a deist. And deism was certainly very prominent around the time of the Enlightenment, when a lot of these economic ideas first surfaced. So I wonder whether certain economic ideas were actually influenced by a belief in a non-active God, or vice versa. But I thought that if we are not deists as Christians, and we think that God's economy is one of constant divine upholding of the universe and divine intervention in it, then perhaps our worldly economy should not be one that is afraid of intervention, of adjustment and reworking. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's worth considering that our world economy has been reworked and has been adjusted countless times over the course of history. We could say that even 50 years ago, the economy looked very different to how it does now. So we can look at these different ways of doing economy and question what what is it that is positive in these experiences? What is it that uh, we should be celebrating as Christians? And how do we how do we draw that out? And how do we use that to create a world that is more just and yeah enables greater flourishing? One of the books that's helped me think through some of these things is Charles Eisenstein's book Sacred Economics, and here he talks a lot about the need to to see the sacred in our economy, not just in, say, the 10% that we're tithing, but the rest of our economy and how that and how that shapes our interactions with one another and with the world around us. I think it's important that we recognise that money stems from 
the need for human beings to be dependent on one another and to cooperate with one another. Um, Eisenstein writes that money co fosters cooperation over vast social distances, helping coordinate the labour of millions of people who are mostly strangers to each other. We see here that money isn't something that is designed to divide or to enable us to compete, but actually to allow us to cooperate and allow us to benefit from the from the different gifts and the different resources that we have across vast distances. But we can see that often this this route of money as a as a thing to bring us together can end up being divisive. Money is this thing that's designed to enable us to cooperate can end up being something that that depersonalizes relationships and leads to it just being a commercial transaction rather than a place for society to flourish. So I think one of the things that this book has really made me think about is, will there be money in the new creation? I think for some, the answer might be a straight out no, that money is the root of all evil and that sort of rhetoric. But it's important to consider what would, what would God's economy look like? What would a kingdom economy look like? And how can we be moving towards that ideal? It might seem like a utopian future that is impossible to achieve, but actually what is it that we can be pulling out as the values of that economy? And how do we ensure that the economy we have um, today reflects that more? Will there be money in the new creation? I think that's an excellent question on which to end our monthly musing. So we now come to our action section where we think about what we can be doing off the back of what we've just heard. Uh, Cameron, what could people be doing this month? Well, I don't think people can completely reshape the economy as a result of this podcast, but obviously we're living through the coronavirus pandemic and there's various ways in which people can respond to this. And as the Joint Public Issues team, we've got a page on our website dedicated to helping church leaders, churches and individuals respond to the current crisis. So there's things on there about helping food banks, helping night shelters, how to thank essential workers. Uh, we've got a stay and pray initiative going on where we can pray for a different justice issue each day uh, during this current crisis. So if you head to the Joint Public Issues Team website, there's plenty of stuff to do there. As always, you can find us on our social media channels. That is at FIP underscore podcast on Twitter and Faith in Politics podcast on Instagram. Um, we'll be sharing with you some of the articles that we've been reading around these topics over the next few weeks. Thank you for joining us on Faith in Politics, a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, Church of Scotland and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. To round us off, we have a prayer from one of our colleagues at the Joint Public Issues team, Dan Simpson. God of all hope, we call on you today. We pray for those who are living in fear. Fear of illness, fear for loved ones fear of others' reaction to them. May your spirits give us a sense of calmness and peace. We pray for your church in this time of uncertainty, for those people who are worried about attending worship, for those needing to make decisions in order to care for others, for those who will feel more isolated 
by not being able to attend. Grant us your wisdom. Holy God, we remember that you have promised that nothing will separate us from your love, demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. Help us turn our eyes, hearts and minds to you. Amen. <laughs>